0: Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Terry Gaskell is an expert in stem cell research and she recently joined Rinri Therapeutics as Chief Technology Officer to help develop regenerative therapies for hearing loss. We talked about her career in cutting-edge research, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the biotech sector, how the stem cell field has advanced over the course of her career, and transitioning to industry. This week I am with Terry Gaskell of Rimri Therapeutics. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, great to have you. And Terry, you and I have spoken about various things for, for some time now. Um, it's great to see that you've you've found a, a really good home there at Rimri and an exciting project. Um, tell us a bit about it.
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm I think officially two months yesterday since I joined Rinri Therapeutics as Chief Technology Happy Officer. Christmas so birthday. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah. In, in, the, in the craziest of times I think it's fair to say yes. um, but no I'm really really excited to be here as, as you know I've been sort of looking for the right opportunity for a while now to bring together all my passions of stem cell and biotech and translational research so this this felt like a, a really really great opportunity um, yeah. so yeah here, here I am
0: so, tell us a bit about the work is doing, because you know I' was just talking about it briefly before we started recording, but it's it's an area that is is clearly impactful, but it doesn't have a lot of focus on it currently. But tell us a bit about how you guys are approaching the work that you do.
1: Yeah, so so we're looking to um develop a cell therapy um to functionally restore hearing loss in people with sensory neural hearing loss. Okay. Um, so, it, it's a huge problem, which is something I wasn't necessarily that aware of. The numbers worldwide are, are really quite staggering. The impact on people's quality of life is really significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's various companies and, and research groups across the world looking at different approaches. So there are small molecule approaches, so a few gene therapy approaches, there are obviously things like devices, and people will be aware of things like cochlear implants. Um, but these all have their their applications, but also their limitations as things do. so, um, there's, a, there's a real need for this kind of functional um, restoration of cells when, the, when they're lost from the um, hearing sort of machinery. So mm. we're focusing on, on the sensory neural cells, so um, primarily um, neural cells to start with, and then also um, looking at hair cells as well, which are the two components that make up the, sort of the, the hearing process. Yes. Um, so we're, we're building on some fantastic research that's been done by Marcelo Rivolto over a number of years at the University of Sheffield. Um, and then RINRI was, was spun out as a company in 2019 to really hmm. progress that through to the clinic to kind of both on all those translational pieces of process development and, and sort of the preclinical development, building the clinical trial design, looking at CTA development and all those things. So, so that's really what we're doing is we're, we're looking to to progress um, and build on the work that's been done over, over a number of years in, in Marcelo's lab.
2: Yeah,
0: fair enough. And and. and touching on something you said there so um hearing loss the major problem for millions and millions of people around the world is wide ranging um, and as you say it can have a real impact on quality of life what are your thoughts on why it hasn't been more focused on and why more companies haven't tried to
2: tackle it
1: Um, i mean people have been looking at it and obviously the medical devices um field is quite large in the space um there are small molecules and, and things i think for cell therapy there are challenges of getting the right cell type which is always always the problem yeah um, okay. but also delivery as well i mean we're lo- looking at sort of topical delivery of these things it's not it's not systemic injection so there, there are challenges um, in in many um, sort of aspects of, of a cell therapy for this but we don't feel that they're insurmountable um, mm-hmm. and, and that's really really what we're focusing on i think that the potential gains are, are are huge and and there are, there are people who really have no other clinical option and really everything that that medical science has at the moment can't help certain sections of of the the population. So um, it's I think there are there are other ways of approaching it which people are focused Mm -hmm. on and and cell therapy is it's never the easy option for anything. (laughs) As 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 I've discovered over many years in in the field, it's 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 rarely the easy option, but I think it gives real um, sort of life changing and and um, curative
0: offerings yes. and, and i suppose for this sort of condition with my with my non-scientist mind thinking about it it makes sense to have a regenerative therapy right because it's often caused by damage to the tissues damage to the cells so if you yeah. can regenerate them then that that logically seems to follow right
1: yeah i mean there are a number of, of applications as you know for sort of especially stem cell therapies kind of employ potent yeah. stem cells which is what we're doing and and those are the the sort of Um, replacement therapies. So if you think of things like Parkinson's, there's been a stem cell therapy just approved in the US um, for clinical trial,
2: Mm -hmm. replacing
1: neurons in the brain that have been lost for Parkinson's. People are replacing um, retinal progenitor cells um, in in the eye for for, uh, macular degeneration. So there are a number of, of sort of applications for these kind of restorative therapies. If you can make the right cell type yes um in the in the correct numbers and 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 everything else then there there are a number of applications where where you can replace a lost function and, yes. and the, the inner ear is is one of them
2: so.
0: makes sense but as always is and we'll sure we'll talk about this the challenge with cell therapies is is getting them in the right place and getting them to work right that's that's the big <laughs> <Yeah. Indeed. Yes. laughs> um I'm sure we'll come on to that um so you've joined though as c t o um, and you mentioned Marcelo Rivolto earlier. So there is a CSO at the company. So I'd be interested sure. to understand your role and the differences between the two and how you work together.
1: Yeah, um, I, I guess me, Marcelo has this sort of huge wealth of, of knowledge and, and the sort of academic background of, of understanding the, the minutiae of the biology of these cells. And that's how they've they've developed this process by by really recapitulating that early development so that mm. we get the right cells. Um, I I guess where I come in is is to sort of almost industrialize that process so I bring a sort of different a different side to the same coin really so it's really important that we we work together so that changes that that have to be made for the process development for scale up for GMP for manufacturing don't impact that fundamental biology so I think having that sort of understanding of both sides and and obviously, I, I spent, as I'm sure we'll come on to, quite a long time in, in sort of academic science of, of picking apart pathways and signaling pathways and things. So I, I think because I have both sides of it, um, my, my job is to kind of pull it across the line without losing the fundamental biology. Um, yes. So to pull, pull together, really taking the lead on sort of process development, manufacturing, um, looking at sort of preclinical data packages and things, um, but also working alongside... other aspects that are going on in the business of looking at the clinical work packages where Mm -hmm. we're looking at at delivery of course which is a huge thing that we touched on it's not the easiest of places to get to so we're looking at delivery we're looking at how do we measure outcomes how do we prove that it works in the clinical setting um what does the trial design look like and things like that but obviously that the product is is the sort of central piece of all this so we can't design something that then can't be delivered properly so all of these pieces have to come together. And and that's, that's kind of where I sit of kind of spinning, helping spin, spin a lot of those plates and make sure that by making a change in one place, we don't compromise something else.
2: Yes,
0: understood. And and I'm sure we'll talk more about this. And I know it's something you and I have talked about in the past in different contexts. And and everyone I talk to in cell therapies, the, the common theme is that it's a unique challenge in cell therapies, because all therapies should be thinking about clinical studies and manufacturing and process development and these sorts of disciplines but in cell therapies you have to think about them all at the same time right? yes. and they all, they all have to come together much earlier so it's, it brings that different yeah
1: it's it's not a sort of linear path that you imagine with if you're designing a small molecule you pretty much know you can scale up the manufacture whereas with yeah. cells it's it's not a given by any stretch of the imagination and certainly yes. not in a sort of simple and uh, we just make the vessel bigger that that often there are Unexpected things happen along that way with with cell therapies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you're going to have plenty to get stuck into over the Absolutely. next. Absolutely, going to be busy. yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good, 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 good. Um, I was interested as well, and I know you've joined recently. So perhaps you know this. This may be something you can comment on from a Rinry point of view, but also I know the position you're in before was was looking at lots of companies across the industry. The last ten months, obviously, as we record this on the twelfth of January. Uh, 2021 have been interesting, shall we say, for everybody. <laughs> Way well, of
1: describing it, yes.
0: Yeah, um, and I think you know, touching on your last point, of course, manufacturing has seen some real challenges in every sector. But but you know, um, certainly it's applied to, to complex biological manufacturing as well. Uh, you know, just because of the social distancing that needs to be in place, because of staff shortages, because of all the things that have happened, right? Um what do you think? If you can comment from a RIMRI point of view or if you can't, that's fine. But but in terms of the the sector and your view on it, what are the things you've seen change over the over that time? And you know, where where do you think the impact's been?
2: Yeah,
1: so I mean, obviously, as you say, from a Rinry point of view, I, I haven't been there for most of that time, but yeah. but I know that like like most companies with sort of small R&D teams, there was that initial impact where first lockdown everything stopped um obviously we're still working with the university of sheffield so the university closed down for a period of time so everything kind of went on ice but of course a small company is still burning through cash at that point so it's it's far from ideal situation um but obviously there are bigger things happening and and i think that all has to be put into context i think what i've been impressed by is how how quickly things have kind of bounced back Mm. um people really after the initial shock, I suppose, of this situation, we all found ourselves in, people started looking for solutions. And I think that's, you have a lot of innovative people in in biotech in in life sciences in science in general. And what we do is we look for solutions to problems. And and I think people just drew on that experience and found ways of making it work. And um, certainly, I mean, going back to my kind of pre-Renry days of of working at Cell and Gene Therapy Catapult, there was a real push to not let people down. We, we work with people like RINRI and, and other small companies who were dependent on on, on the cell and gene therapy to, to deliver, to help them keep moving through their development plans. And, and we've seen the same with um, a lot of the manufacturers and, and other CROs, that everyone has just been really passionate about not holding things up any more mm. than, than safety dictated. So mm. I, I think there's been a real a real kind of push in the field to to get things going again. I mean, for us at at RINRI now, there's that kind of, okay, let's look at the plans again. We can't just push everything back by 10 months. What can we run in parallel? What can we do and who can we work with? So I think there's that whole kind of drawing on resources, external resources as well, um, maybe running a few things in parallel that you might not otherwise have done. And and I think that's probably what a lot of of biotechs in in our situation are doing, of just kind of reaching out and, and kind of pulling together and going, okay, who can we work with to move this bit forward? Because we don't have the resource to do everything at once. And now we need to start kind of juggling things around a bit and crunching some of those timelines and, and just kind of risk assessing the situation and seeing what, what can be done. Um, yeah. So I think it's in terms of manufacturing, I mean, again, with my kind of cell therapy catapult, um, head on cell and gene therapy catapult. So it's cell therapy catapult when I joined a long, long time uh, yes, ago. Um, but they they managed to keep the manufacturing centre in Stevenage going throughout the whole time. It did mm. not shut down, and they were generating material, or their their collaborators were generating material for clinical trials throughout throughout the whole lockdown. So, I think in terms of those sort of very highly regulated GMP environments, and, and obviously we know that the viral vector manufacturers have been very busy this year, yes. um, generating <laughs> vaccines. So, um, people have found a way of making it work, and it's been challenging, and, and I think incredibly stressful for for a lot of people. But um, I think people understand the importance of, of not not holding back on, on other things. I mean, people are still suffering from other diseases and, and dying
0: from
2: yeah. other
1: conditions. So it's important to keep things going as much as as much as we can. Yeah, it, this, it will be over at some point. It so, will.
0: Yeah. <laughs> as I keep saying to people, hopefully we're much nearer the end than the beginning.
2: <laughs> I do
0: hope so. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's something um, that that's impressed me over the last 10 months about the sector is just how yes there was an initial impact and you know we saw in our business there was a couple of weeks where pretty much everything stopped yeah Yeah. um but aside from that once everyone had had their board meetings and calmed down um there's been very little impact there's been some impact of course and Mm. there's been some operational challenges and things like that but people have kept moving and kept moving forward. And, and in this sector, we've seen very few redundancies, very few mass furloughs and things like this. There's been some, but not yeah. as many as elsewhere. And I think it's, you know, partly testament to the importance of the work and, and the essential nature of it, but also that like you say the, the commitment to to supporting each other, the collaboration, there's been so much more collaboration and open collaboration over the last yeah. year than I think probably over the last five years combined before that, right? It's
1: yeah, we can look for some silver linings from all this, I think. Yeah, so.
0: Exactly. Well, we know how fast things can get approved now as well. Exactly. <laughs> so. I know, I know. The cat's out of the bag, you see. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, I've been impressed, obviously. I found my, my, my dream job in all of this, and, and certainly mm. when... I mean, as you know, I'd been looking around for a while for the right opportunity, and so when, when the first lockdown, when this whole kind of meteor struck, I just thought, well, that's this year written off. <laughs> I'll, I'll try again next year, and then here I am. Yeah. And I know of, of other people who, who, who were looking to, to move on anyway, who've who found really fantastic opportunities, and someone else who decided to set up their own consultancy just before it hit. But even that person is, is thriving in this environment mm. because things are still moving. So yeah. I, I think it's been that, that. Certainly was was a revelation to me. I, I'd written off the whole finding a new job in twenty <laughs> twenty you never know what's around the corner
0: there you go there you go so we'll come back to that and we'll come back to today and what you're up to at the moment and Rimri and and this kind of stuff but we always like to go back to the beginning and i have a suspicion this is the question my guests don't like but i always ask (laughs) (laughs) so you you originally trained in in biochemistry and molecular biology and and started out on that path but tell us terry why science? Why biology, biochemistry, the biological disciplines? And I suppose your journey into drug discovery, drug development and, and this, part of the, this part of the world.
1: Yeah, it's a distressingly long time ago now. Um, <laughs> so when, when I was sort of doing my coming up to GCSEs and things, if you go right back there, I've always just been fascinated with how stuff works and, mm-hmm. and just found science just fascinating and, and that sort of real geeky curiosity about stuff. Um, And and that sort of translated more into a fascination with with biology. I had some really, really, as people often say, inspirational teachers. Some some of our biology teachers were just fantastic and they really got that kind of passion and enthusiasm across. But the two subjects that I liked when I finally got to A-level were biology and chemistry. I did Mm -hmm. physics as well, which a bit left field, but it was good fun. Um, So I kind of just went, oh, I like biology and chemistry. Why don't I do biochemistry? Um, I, I went through a brief period of considering doing medicine and then I decided I actually wanted to go into research at the time. No one said you can do medicine and then still do research afterwards and get paid a lot more money for doing so. But there you go. Yeah. Um so so I, I just sort of schmoozed together the two things that I really liked to biology and chemistry. And off I went to, to Dundee to do biochemistry, mm-hmm. um, which was geographically a, a reasonably sized move. Um, yes. And <laughs> so but it was it was it was great. I didn't. Feel homesick it was just really exciting to be to be there kind of indulging in, in this sort of passion and, and interest so i think that's what i've what i've always done is, is try to follow what i find interesting mm. um and i've been very fortunate that i've managed to to make a career out of doing what i what i love doing and, and what i find really fascinating so yes yeah so i mean biochemistry and kind of what i really liked was the molecular biology and sort of signaling pathways and and how cells work how do they make decisions to do the right thing, to do the wrong thing, and, mm-hmm. and how would you kind of control them? So that kind of went on to my PhD, which was very fundamental sort of cell cycle control, really that sort of checkpoints and, and decision-making processes, signaling pathways, um, which I found really interesting. That was in fishing East. Um, so that, that was sort of back in the, back in the day of, of uh, single-celled organisms. And okay. then I made a big jump when I did my first postdoc, um all the way up the evolutionary chain to humans um mm-hmm. I was looking at germ cell development but still with that real sort of fundamental developmental cell biology hat on which I've kind of maintained really throughout throughout my career um so my first postdoc was at the uh, reproductive sciences unit in Edinburgh with mm-hmm. a, with an amazing lady called um, Philippa Saunders who's now professor Philippa Saunders and she was just great I think she she kind of pushed but also supported, so it was just a really great environment to go from being a sort of a PhD student where you're quite frankly fairly clueless, um, <laughs> even though even though you think you know more stuff, but you, you, sure.
2: you're just kind
1: of not um, into the sort of postdoc where it, it's really sort of independent research and, and supporting other people and and um, sort of mentoring other people in the lab, and, and I think it was for me it was a great environment that team environment. real focus on 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 what we were trying to achieve and I think there was Mm -hmm. always that what's the end game what what do we we would map out what the publication might look like and then design the experiments to give us very clear answers and that whole mindset was was really really great Um, so I spent spent four years in Philippa's lab which was just just a really good sort of training ground did some exciting research found out some stuff that no one else knew before which I think is the real driver. When you're a scientist, is just yeah, like you flick the switch on the transilluminator and just go. I'm the first person who's ever seen that band there, and, and not that anyone of you will know what the hell I'm talking about. With bands on gels and things, but um, but that's. But the, I think the, it's the, that real passion yeah. of finding out something new and something hopefully useful for the first time and putting the pieces together. Um, so that was that was in sort of humans as a model organism, which is obviously not the most tractable model organism. Um, <laughs> And then I, I sort of was looking around for, well, what will I do next? And, and this was sort of in the, in the early 2000s when stem cells, and pluripotent stem cells were really kind of gathering pace and um, decided I wanted to have a little look into that and see, see, see what was going on there. So I, I went to the uh, Institute for Stem Cell Research at the University of Edinburgh. I was very fortunate to get a postdoc position there with Claire Blackburn uh, looking at thymus development. So again, yes. bringing that developmental biology side um, but really looking to see, could we generate those cells from pluripotent stem cells? So that was the f- my first taster of, of sort of looking at cell culture and controlling cells and trying to make the right cell yeah. type from, from from this kind of naive population that you, you start with. Um, and that again, that was a, a great environment. I worked with some fantastic people there, some really really good other groups. So there's that collaboration and sort of learning from other people who I'm now still in contact with, which is really nice. Um, but I think probably partway through, maybe sort of halfway through towards the end of that postdoc, I decided I wanted to, to look much more translationally um,
2: okay.
1: and, and sort of really understand what it takes to, to kind of move something towards the clinic. I mean, baby steps, I wasn't talking about going to sort of all the way, but I just wanted yeah. to be in that much more translational environment where you have a focus on a product. And I think the thing that struck me is that back, back in the day when I was doing that, it seemed to be a very binary choice between mm. being an academic or being a commercial scientist. Mm. And there wasn't this kind of blurring of the waters that there is now, I think. Yeah. Um, it felt like you had to make that choice. And I made that choice much to the horror of quite a lot of my sort of <laughs> academic colleagues who <laughs> thought I'd sold my soul to the devil and was going over to the dark. Many of them
0: still science. speak to
1: you? Yeah, most of them do, yeah. <laughs> but, but I did have a few of those people just going, what, what, you're leaving? <laughs> going into commercial science, that's terrible. So I think for me that that was a really crucial move of just Mm. making that kind of shift Um, wasn't the easiest of moves to find either because I was quite experienced as a postdoc. So to make the move after that length of time in academia wasn't the easiest of of, of roles to find. Um, But I was very fortunate that I got a role at uh, Solartis, who'd set up um, a sort of satellite They're based in Gothenburg, but they'd set up this sort of satellite lab in Dundee, Yeah, from Edinburgh back to Dundee again. and, and worked there as a, as a, a stem cell scientist. And, and I think what I, what I found and message really is that commercial science, industrial science is still excellent science. People are not cutting corners.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: think that the difference is that there's a real focus on that product development. So you're not necessarily free to pursue any kind of interesting tangents that come along the way. It's, it's that real, okay, that's interesting, but it's not helpful, so yes. stick to the program. And that's that, for me, is, is, is the difference that I found was there was a focus on this is a problem we need to solve. And if you come across something interesting along the way, you can park it and we might come back to it later. But you yeah. just don't have that freedom to pursue stuff as it comes up. Um, but otherwise, I found it the same as being a, a scientist anywhere else. You went into the lab every day, you grew cells, you did PCRs, you did flow, you did whatever else. Um, so I, I spent two years at Solartis and kind of worked my way up from sort of scientist to to uh, sort of project leader really um, and I think that, again there's if you go into industry certainly if you go into sort of fairly small company there's real opportunities to progress quite quickly um, yes. and it, it's not about time served you don't have to do three years before you're a senior postdoc it's a can you show your worth can you show your value and demonstrate that and, and you will be recognized and and promoted, which is actually really nice. And I think for me, that was quite a sort of confidence builder mm, as well, mm. that you can just go, OK, I'm actually quite good at this stuff. And <laughs> people see that. This is really nice. Um, so that, that was great. And, and again, it was just a really nice group of people to work with. Um, but then I was, I was sort of offered the opportunity to join a really small company, to join a, a startup um, down in just outside Cambridge. So we, we kind of made the move, moved down south. Um, yeah. To, to do that so I joined again as a sort of principal lead scientist and joined and the two years I was there I ended up as CSO just
2: mm-hmm. some
1: general personnel maneuvers uh, which sounds very grand but there were only three of us so I was also like lab manager and cleaner and everything else but
0: it still definitely counts definitely still definitely counts <laughs> yeah
1: it's still on my business card but I think it that was really good as well because it kind of played to my sort of desire to just roll my sleeves up and and get involved and and not be bound by what was on your job description or what's your job title it's in a small company it's just a question of what needs to be done and who's the best person to do it and I think that flexibility I quite like I like being in that kind of small environment where everyone's just kind of pulling together which I guess kind of brings me back to where I am
2: Mm. now is
1: is that real kind of family team feel Um, so that was really exciting I got exposure because I ended up in that kind of CSO position to sort of interactions with investors and
2: fundraising
1: and all that kind of stuff that I perhaps hadn't really done before and even doing sort of tech support with the sort of product sales and things which was a complete novelty to me as well so yes I think that's it You, you sort of you just you learn stuff as you go along the way and and you just have to sort of take the opportunity and make stuff up as you go along sometimes but everyone's there isn't a set answer to a lot of these things you just have to draw on what you know and and, and and what you think is the right thing to do and and go for it and
2: mm-hmm.
1: certainly in biotech there is there is a cost to doing nothing so you can't be yes. paralyzed by by inactivity because there is a cost to, to not making a decision and, and at least ruling something out if nothing else yes i think that was a that was a really really good experience but i think what i what i was looking for in my kind of next move was back to that kind of clinical application or towards clinical application translation. So that the company that I was CSO was cell guidance systems who are who are going great guns and, and doing some really good stuff. But mm. it was much more in kind of reagent development. And I wanted to get back to cell therapy product development. Yes. Um, and fortunately for me, uh, the cell therapy catapult as it was then had been set up um, sort of six months or so before I was looking to move and I, and I knew someone that had gone there as a program manager. Um, and a job came up, so I applied for it and, and was was fortunate to be given the opportunity to join, uh, as I say the cell therapy catapult as it was then as a program manager, I had zero formal project management
2: qualifications <laughs>
1: and still have zero project formal project yeah. management qualifications. But I think if you've if you've been a postdoc and you've, you've run a team and you kind of pick it up as you go along, it's not rocket science. So Microsoft project, however, is a whole different ballgame,
2: but the actual
1: <laughs> kind of concept of project management is, and program yes. management is, it's a lot of common sense and team building and, yes. and sort of getting on with people. Um,
0: and a lot of people will be aware of the catapults and, and the cell and gene therapy catapult particularly, but if they're not, it's a really interesting setup and a really interesting concept and organisation. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and what your role there was?
1: Yeah, um, so obviously it was set up to support the UK industry, really, um, to, to build build the industry around say it's now cell and gene therapy catapult mm. the name changed a couple of years in um and, and really to support um academics to support spin outs to support really anyone in, in the in the ecosystem but also to bring in inward investment so as, as well as working with, with uk entities and, and academics and groups then um we as in the, as in the catapult when i was still there um worked with with International companies, sort of big pharma, US companies, to, to bring them to the UK to maybe run their clinical trials here, um, to set up manufacturing, just to really build that that industry um, in in the UK as, as sort of high value jobs. So as well as sort, it was always the health and wealth of the UK. It, it was about bringing products to the UK so mm-hmm. that UK patients can benefit from those, but also to build build jobs and to build build an industry really. Yes. Um, on the back of the sort of fantastic science that goes on in the uk and, and to make sure that 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 stays in the uk and the uk benefits from all that investment and, and and all of that good work that goes on that it doesn't just kind of ip doesn't scatter to the winds and and disappear and, and other people benefit from it yeah. first so i mean it was great i, I ended up as, as head of program delivery there and um, with a team of just fantastic um program managers and and pmo support who we, we, we kind of made a bespoke system, so we, we didn't none of us really or very few of us had that kind of formal program management training. Mm. So we, we were able to to do what worked and to to kind of build it in the way that that we needed to, so we, we yeah. weren't too kind of high bound by by the dogma of how you should do this stuff. I mean obviously, right. there, are, there are basics of control that you need and, and tracking and reporting. and and as time went on, when I joined, there were twenty five of us um and now there's over 300 people at okay. Castle, and they've got the manufacturing center and now they've got the vaccine the, the manufacturing innovation center so there's there's it's it's huge now in, in a relatively mm. short period of time so obviously the structure had to grow with that and, and the amount of, of sort of controls and, and regulation for want of a better word grew with that as well but but fundamentally we were just a, a bunch of scientists with with this sort of critical mass of expertise and enthusiasm there to to help people um and, and the way catapult was and is judged is is by how other people progress, yes, um, yes and 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 flourish and thrive. So it's it's not about sort of the bottom line of, of the catapult, it's 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 how how the ecosystem and how that industry is growing and, and I mean they're still doing they're still there doing doing great work and, and the teams are still there. The labs are the labs are still working, they kept going um, most of the time throughout throughout the covid sort of restrictions mm-hmm. they, they were back in the lab supporting supporting sort of whoever it was they were working with and it's not just labs they've got they've got the lab teams who do sort of process analytical development they've got um the biostatisticians they've got the sort of data scientists but also preclinical, regulatory clinical manufacturing and and sort of advice on licensing and and, yeah. and all, everything you could possibly need so it's it's a Incredible resource, and I, I would I would with my uh, catapult hat on I, I would encourage anyone who who's looking for support if you certainly if you're thinking of spinning something out for academic groups, just go and go and speak to them. Yes, because they are incredibly helpful and and that was part of the job that I had at catapult. it wasn't again it wasn't part of my job description, but I really enjoyed being part of their sort of commercialization of research team where
2: yeah
1: it was that engagement with with academic groups who had great ideas and great ambitions and and we could kind of help them on the path and and working with with SMEs, um, so that was something that I found I found really exciting. That kind of early, kind of just just about to 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 fly and 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 go off and set up set up a company and and take these things forward. So yes, it's, yeah, it's, it's I mean it's a great organization and and I had a, a great time there. I learned so much. Mm,
2: um, sometimes
1: sure. um, sometimes just thrown in at the deep end. And um, sometimes it was a bit scary, and I was just like, I have no idea. <laughs> um, but Surrounded by amazing people who were really generous with their time and their expertise, um, and, and not not just in terms of, of the people at the catapult, but I, I had the sort of privilege of getting to know a lot of our collaborators and, and third parties, and CROs and CMOs, clinicians, IP lawyers, licensing experts. So just just that experience was incredible. Mm. But for me, it, it was I, I learned so much in that period of time that. Kind of really made me think okay now I've put my money where my mouth is and, and try and try and sort of really get involved in something and time to time to move on and kind of draw all that together and uh, catapult i'm sure they are fine without me
0: <laughs> i'm sure they miss you very much as well um so a couple of things i was really interested in so you've you've touched on this but you right from when you were doing your postdoc you were involved in stem cells and and using those to develop cells at the time and then therapies currently um i I think you know and and this is a technology that's that's still relatively new right you you know as technologies go it's not been around for that long particularly in a commercial sense Mm,
2: um
0: there's been some successes recently with cell therapies more broadly i think over the last two or three years particularly there have been more of them approved um so you know things are progressing and the technology is becoming more mainstream although there's still significant challenges with it as yeah. you touched on but what are the biggest differences for people if they were coming into the field now um you know starting their career in in stem cell research or cell therapy research what do you think the difference is now between when you got involved and, and now
1: i mean the tools we have available and technology is is just a world part from- right I mean, we were like homebrewing our own media and things, and <laughs> partly because you're in academia, and that's just what you do. Um, but also, there the, the weren't there were a few commercial media around, but maybe not so many. Um, and lots of people were still growing stuff on on feeders and or in, in kind of conditioned media and, and things like that. So the the tools that are available, and I think just the general knowledge around how to characterize your cells and, and understanding of what level of characterization you need um is is much more and and i think they're now viewed as a sort of credible potential therapy previously people were just going yeah yeah at some point but
2: right. there was
1: a lot of hype around it and then that all kind of when people realized how hard it was going to be it kind of died yes. off a little bit um <laughs> yes. but now I, th- I think it's it's there, there's so much investment and there is so much expertise around now in in sort of uh, certainly, I mean, I, when I say stem cells, I, I mean, sort of pluripotent stem cells. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the sort of MSC field and the hematopoietic stem cell field, is uh, they all have their own expertise as well. Um, but certainly, for pluripotent stem cells, there, there is now that, that they're gathering or they have gathered momentum. And, and there, are, there are companies now that are putting really, really quite significant investments in, in building the platforms um, yes. of making sure that you've got the right starting material, um, of, of making sure that, that there are the right... Um, tools to control and to analyze and to characterize um, as you go along. So I think there's there's a real path being trodden now by by some mm. of big companies. And um, I think I mentioned earlier, a company called Blue Rock had a, a CTA approved in, in the US for their Parkinson's clinical trial. And, and they're, they're a company who, I mean, relatively new, um, a mm. lot of really good sort of academic founders went into this, bringing their different so that they're, they're covering cardiac, they're covering um Parkinson's and, and they have sort of different clinical indications but but all under this kind of platform of potent stem cell therapies. So yes. It's it's a it's a different world now I think it's cell therapy, pluripotent stem cell therapies are a reality now rather than rather kind of distant dream. It's just making them available um mm-hmm. and, and getting through the clinical trials obviously it's still we're still a way off these things being accepted clinical practice or routine clinical practice.
2: Yeah, but
0: but we're working on it. As you say, there's a there's a there's some markers in the sand, right? There's there's some some footsteps on the path already that you can start to. That are, you know, yeah. and each it's a complex therapy, right? So you're not going to be able to do each one the same way, but there's at least some there's the building
1: blocks, I think, along know. the way in terms yeah. of making a master cell bank. Your starting material should always be the same, regardless of what what indication you're going down and and sort of how you grow those cells so there are those kind of building blocks at the beginning um and and there's a lot we can learn from i mean now people are looking at making t cells from ips cells Mm -hmm. to to improve the supply um rather than have to do autologous um, therapies then we could go down an allogeneic route so Mm. that would make it more broadly available so it, it's sort of that if it's already been done with with a cell, with a, with a sort of donor cell, then can we make it now from pluripotent stem cells to make that supply easier? So that there's a lot we can learn from obviously sort of the cell therapy field in yeah. general, um, in terms of uh, uh, dosing and, and, and safety and, and all those other things as well, that, that we can kind of, to some degree sort of piggyback on and, and then just go okay now can we make those from ips cells and, and I, I think a few companies are sort of going down that route or, or embryonic stem cells or your pluripotent stem cell of choice but um it's it's definitely it's it's a it's a reality now and i, I think it's uh it, it is fingers crossed only a matter of time before before one of these actually gets approved as a mm. as a marketed product
0: yeah absolutely um and fingers crossed it'll be very soon um the other thing you mentioned which I was really interested to pick up on because it's something that we hear quite a lot in in the work that we do outside of the podcast in the in the recruitment work that we do um you mentioned that when you first got into industry it was a bit of a challenge because you'd been a postdoc for a little while I think was it nine years or
2: something nine years yeah yeah
0: this is something we hear quite a lot is when people because people's motivations change over a nine-year period right so it might be that five years in you're still really enjoying it and that's what you see yourself doing and then you know life changes right and you're the nature of I think particularly when people go into fields like science it's because they like learning and they like developing a lot of the time so yeah after seven eight nine years it's natural to want to do something different I think um, but I think it is a struggle for people I think there is a, a bit of a sort of uh, a perception from the market and I'm not saying this is the right perception i just think it exists that um you know well if you were going to move into industry why haven't you done it by now or, or are you really an academic or you're really an industry person or you know did, i'm sure you face some of those questions as well so any any advice that you'd give to people in that situation anything that worked for you particularly
1: um perseverance i think as much as anything <laughs> i mean i spent i spent quite a lot of time looking at jobs and speaking to various group and consultants back in Back then, and he just went, "Okay, but you've got no industry experience, so we can get you a job as a tissue culture technician." Mm. It's like, well, I've got nine years postdoc experience. That's so a little bit lower than I was intending to. Yes. Not that I mean, the right technician is is the bedrock of any lab, but it, it felt like a, you're not really understanding what my experience is.
2: Mm.
1: It's like it's I, I can do good science. I can write papers, which are proposals, or so I, I think understanding what those transferable elements are. So, I, I think really, I mean, cell artists were, were great and because they were quite sort of youngish organization and, and had a lot, of, a lot of academic ties, then I think it was probably a slightly easier cell to just go, you just need a scientist, and I'm a scientist, so I can do that. Um,
2: yeah.
1: and, and, and sort of my approach to, to sort of stem cells and, and the technical experience that I had. But I, I think what's, what's important is to understand, understand what you do know, and and try and and flip it around to, what is it people are looking for? They're looking for people who can make a plan, who can execute a plan, who can analyze data, who can overcome challenges, which inevitably happen because nothing ever works where you think it's going to. So I I think it's how you frame your experience and and how you you present what you've done. You can't can't conjure up commercial experience if you don't have it, but what you can do is, is put your experience in the context of what the employer's looking for. And I think understanding what, what that context is, is really important rather than just going, oh, I don't have any experience. Well, you do, you've got a huge right. amount of experience. You just have to twist a little bit how you're thinking about it. And mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I have always found that brutal honesty is the best policy when job hunting. Never claim you can do something you can't, you will get found out. Yes. It's, <laughs> but it doesn't mean you can't think about something and, and just go, well, I applied for a grant. That means I can write a proposal. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's it's the same thought process. It's just different language.
0: Yeah. And and I think so one thing that I think people do sometimes forget is that yes, there are channels to go through and there might be a, a HR department or there might be recruiters or there might be other people in the in the business that are reviewing CVs and things like that. But I guess ultimately the hiring manager is usually a scientist. Yeah. For scientific roles. And so there will be a bit of an understanding of that. But I suppose it's just, as you say, about presenting those transferable skills to be able to get in front of the right person who can then fully appreciate yeah. what you've done.
1: Yeah, it, it depends, yeah, how much filtering it goes to people who, <laughs> who are looking for keywords. And and, and yeah. I'm sure that happens. I fortunately, whenever I've been recruiting, I've always got the unfiltered CVs. So it's, I found that I'd, I'd rather sift through 75 CVs than miss the one person because someone didn't quite know what they were looking for mm. but i appreciate not everyone else has as much fun reading cvs but uh
2: it is. nothing better
0: nothing better it
1: is it is about presenting yourself and, and understanding what the job is and understanding yes. what what experience you do have um and and how relevant it is yes especially if you're just going for a scientist role you're still a scientist you're still going to be picking up in the lab every day the petting stuff so it's uh, so <laughs>
0: Well, and that was an interesting point you made before, is that there is, of course, differences of objective and differences of, of mentality and, and priority and things like that. But fundamentally, 60 and 70% of the job is the same thing each day. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and I guess thinking more broadly, looking at your career, you know, you you've spent your career, I suppose, treading untrodden paths, which is, which is... I'm sure exciting and it must have been more of those moments of oh no one's ever known this before throughout which is which is a great way to spend your time but also you've done lots of different types of roles in different types of environments you know working in the lab as a scientist in c-level executive positions and then also at the catapult you know supporting other companies and enabling them so you've covered a lot of ground in a a short space of time Um, but What are the, I guess from a career point of view, you've probably touched on one of them just then when we we had that conversation about moving into industry, but what are the things you've learned, do you think? What are the things you'd pass on to people out there who perhaps are building their career? And
2: I I think
1: don't be bound by what you think you should be doing Mm. Um, and keep looking for opportunities to to learn new skills and to meet new people. Um, Networking is hugely important. Um, But I think understand that networking is a two way street. It's not just what people can do for you. There's there's two sides to this and and be willing to give up your time and and your kind of expertise where you can help other people out. And I think that's certainly in science and as we've said over the last year, the sort of collaboration is is incredibly important. You can't do any of this on your own. So I think within the confines of IP, being willing to sort of share your experience and and your expertise is really important. Um, And I think also, I. Which probably is an attachment I never had a ten-year plan, never. Right. I, I didn't. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just wanted to do things that interested me, as I said in the beginning. So I've just sort of taken opportunities as they've come up, even if I've just gone, oh, never really thought of doing that. That might be interesting. What could I learn from this role? Mm-hmm. So I, I think just that some willingness to be, to be um, sort of open to new opportunities and and to to just pick things up as you go along. Um, I think one of the things I, I did learn, certainly, I think in the early days at Casport when we were all just kind of in this situation, was don't panic. There is a solution to every situation. <laughs> you, you just have to think about things rationally and calmly. Yes. Speak to other people. Look for those kind of um, ways forward, um, and 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 just kind of yeah, think your way through situations.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe one thing. I think don't panic is a, is a good one to finish. <laughs> um, so talking about looking forward to 2021, um, what's, what's the future going in store for you and RIMRI and and what's next for you guys?
1: Well, we're, I mean, now, now we're just kind of building on those plans and executing on the plans and, and heading, heading for the, for the clinic as, as safely mm-hmm. and efficiently as, as we can really. Um, for me, it's, this is obviously the start of, of my my journey with Rinri so I'm sure I'm just looking forward to kind of drawing on all of that um expertise to to support everything that we're trying to do and, and, and move forward and obviously I'm hoping I, and I'm sure I will find a few opportunities to learn some new stuff along the way as well
0: always yes <laughs> well best of luck with it thank you very much you. for your time Terry thank you um, and good to see you
1: great to see you again too thanks Tom.
0: Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.